0: Have you ever heard uh, people ask questions where the answer seems obvious? Maybe someone comes walking in the room on crutches and someone says, oh, have you hurt your leg? I mean, how do you respond to that question? No, I just like to use crutches, I guess. Or you see someone with a handkerchief maybe over their nose and blood is kind of coming through and all over their face and, oh, do you have a nosebleed? No, I'm just practicing for a, you know, a role in a film or something. We're, well, how do you respond to a question that seems to have such an obvious answer? Or you arrive home from work uh, early one day, and someone says, Oh, are you home already? No, I'm a figment of your imagination. We ask a lot of questions that seem to have rather obvious answers And today, I want to build our message in this third miraculous sign in John's gospel around one of the questions that Jesus asked that seems almost as obvious as that. It's the question Jesus asked a man who'd been sick for 38 years. And here's what he asked. Do you want to get well? It seems almost like an insult. But Jesus never wasted a question. And this man needed to face that question and answer it just as you and I do today. And that's why, and I want to let you know this right up front, we're going to carve out some time at the end of this message at all of our locations, uh, whether you're worshiping up in Saratoga or at Half Moon, whether you're worshiping at Latham or over in Greenbush, all of our congregations, we're going to carve out some time at the end to come and pray together. There will be caring and wise leaders at the front altar area to receive you. They would be thrilled just to pray uh, briefly with you if you'd like, or just listen and maybe chat for a moment, or if you'd rather just pray on your own, that's totally fine. You can Come and and just stand or kneel as you please. But primarily, we want you to have a transforming moment with God. No one's going to rush you. This is a time between you and God as you respond to what the Lord is doing in your life. Now, let's set the scene for this third miraculous sign, and then we'll draw some implications for our lives today. Our passage starts in John chapter 5 and verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, we don't know which one it was, but later I'm going to suggest which one I think it was because I I think it's significant. But he's there to celebrate this Jewish feast. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, the word Bethesda means house of mercy. By the way, as you study the Bible, uh, anytime you see the word Beth, it generally means house, Okay? Uh, If you're driving around our area and you see a, a synagogue that says Beth Shalom, it means house of peace. Or if you're in the Bible, you see Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, it means house of bread. Or Bethsaida, one of the words in the Gospels up in Galilee, it means house of fishing because a lot of fishing went on there. Or if you read about the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the friends of Jesus, lived, they lived in Bethany. It means house of figs. Apparently, they grew a lot of figs in that region. And here, Bethesda means house of mercy. Where I grew up in the south, there were a lot of small churches that dotted the countryside with that name, Bethesda Church of Christ, Bethesda United Methodist Church, Bethesda Baptist Church. It means a place, a house of mercy, pretty good name for a church, actually. Because that's precisely what a church ought to be. A place where you can find compassion and help. Verse 3 says here, A great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. A great number. The Greek word there is mega, a lot. It's, this is a picture of... <coughs> Tremendous destitution, human need on a grand scale. But I'm struck by that final word, paralyzed. What do you think of when you hear that someone is paralyzed? I think first, I at least think physically paralyzed. Maybe their legs, they just can't move them, or they've been paralyzed from the waist down or the neck down or whatever, right? I think of a physical problem, but I want us to consider today that there are all kinds of paralysis. You see, we can be paralyzed emotionally through past or present abuse or through hurts in our lives, through fears. We can be paralyzed and literally stuck. We can be in a rut in life because of paralysis people could also be paralyzed spiritually through sin or a lack of genuine repentance or through disobedience to God or through a lack of trust in God all these things can lead to a spiritual paralysis and i'm suggesting that all of us have it in fact i want you to know and you may not want to include yourself in this but i'm sure including myself i believe that all of God's people have some level of paralysis where there's a hindrance, a blockage, a hurt, a habit, a hang-up that's holding us back in some way. All of us are dealing with some kind of paralysis. And I know this to be true of many of you. In your journey through life, you've been bowed down with grief. In what you're dealing with right now, perhaps you've become bitter and resentful. You're in the right place because this is a house of mercy, and that's why we're going to urge you to come in just a few minutes as we all stand and then we respond to what God is doing, and there'll be leaders here to help you and guide you if you'd like. This is a place of mercy. This is a place where people care. And most of all, God cares deeply about you. So I'm going to urge you to seek him. Now, I want you to notice something here that I was struck by this week as I was studying through this passage. I was struck by the contrast between verse 3 and verse 5. We've already seen that there were a mega number of people there, a lot of suffering, hurting people. Verse 3 reads, here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. But contrast that with verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Of all the people who were hurting, Jesus zeroed in on one. In fact, verse six says, Jesus saw him lying there. And I'm saying that that is good news. Because of all the people that are sitting around you today, I want you to know that Jesus is zeroing in on you. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus sees your hurt, he sees every tear. And he cares for you. By the way, if you study the Gospels carefully, I think you'll be amazed at how Jesus just was drawn like a magnet to hurting people. We would expect that, by the way. I mean, after all, when he launched his public ministry and he stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and read from the scroll in Isaiah, this is what he read. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen, Jesus came for needy people and I'm suggesting that's all of us. But here's the problem. And here's why I'm concerned that some of you today may not really have the encounter with God that you need. Here's why. Because all of us are needy, but not all of us know it. All of us are needy. All of us have some paralysis, some blockage, some hindrance, some area where we really could use a breakthrough, honestly, but not all of us know it. And listen, I've discovered that your encounter with Jesus is almost going to be in direct proportion to how aware you are of your need for him. Some of you are saying, I'm too messed up for Jesus, Pastor. (laughs) Ha, ha, You can't be too messed up for Jesus. On the other hand, you can be put too put together for Jesus. Because if you think you're a self made woman, self made man, all buttoned up, all zipped up, you've got all your ducks in a row, you've got it all together. Listen, you're not gonna see your need. And you're gonna miss what God can do for you. You can't be too messed up for Jesus. This is a place of mercy and compassion. You remember when Jesus was criticized for spending too much time with broken, sinful people? Do you remember how he responded to that? It's kind of interesting. Matthew 9, on hearing this, that is this criticism, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners." And I pray that you don't think you're too put together today for the Lord. We all have needs. We all need to understand that Jesus is zeroing in on our area of need. The question is, are we humble enough to acknowledge it? Now, we don't know the nature of this man's paralysis, do we? The text doesn't tell us. But I'm kind of curious that later in chapter 5, in fact, in verse 14, It says, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well now. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Isn't that an intriguing statement? Now let's be crystal clear on this. Not all of the problems we're dealing with are a direct result of our sin. I hope we're all clear on that. Not all of the issues, not all the struggles are a direct result of our own sin. But listen, some of them are. Sometimes they are. And apparently, in this man's case, apparently something that he had been involved in or was involved in had been a source of some of his problems. (coughs) And Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? I mean, that intrigues me. 38 years is an awfully long time. Jesus, surely that was the number one driving obsession of his life. Surely he was just looking forward to the day he could get well. But Jesus never asked unnecessary questions. By the way, if you want an intriguing homework assignment... If you want a Bible study that'll blow your mind, just go through the Gospels sometime. Wow, this is fun to do. And just look at the questions Jesus asked. That's all, just the questions. He asked the most probing, penetrating, and profound questions you've ever heard in your life. But let me ask, why did Jesus ask this question? Why? I want to make three quick suggestions as to possible reasons that he asked it. One is that helplessness can lead to hopelessness. We've seen it over and over in human experience. If someone is helpless for a prolonged period of time, whether it's a physical weakness, a mental depression, (coughs) an emotional pain, it can create a sense of, of hopelessness. And you can live for weeks without food. You and I can live for days without water. We can live for minutes without oxygen. But we simply cannot live without hope. And when a person reaches a place of hopelessness, they're in a bad place. They need help. The question is, do we know it? Secondly, I would suggest helplessness can lead, it doesn't always, but it can lead to laziness. Many people will testify that the less they do, the less they want to do. It just kind of has a snowballing effect, and this man might have thought, look, if I get well, I won't have people caring for me anymore. I'll have to care for myself and helplessness can become an excuse for all kinds of things and third i would suggest to you that helplessness can lead to a sense of uselessness I mean, come on, for 38 years, his friends have done everything for him, brought him food, moved him where he needed to go, brought him water, maybe changed his um, bedding every now and then. They've done all these things, and maybe he's thinking, what good will I be if I'm healed? I'm still gonna be useless. In other words, it had become his very identity. I am a useless person. Bottom line, This man was dealing with what many of us deal with on a regular basis. His fears, his fears of getting truly well had so incarcerated him that he wondered if he ever really wanted to change. He feared how it would change his life. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, I see that kind of thinking all the time all the time. I see people who reason, look, if I just stay a detached, uncommitted, church-going person, but never really take God all that seriously, look, it'll be better because then I don't have to wonder about, hey, changing my lifestyle Monday through Saturday. I'll just go through my Sunday routine and it'll be status quo. Or I see people who reason, maybe it's better if I just stay a defeated, distant, quasi-believer. I mean, come on, at least then there's no risk of God ever calling me to the mission field or to do something really radical. I see people reason all the time. Hey, you know what? Maybe it's better if I don't take the lordship of Christ seriously. Then I don't have to ask any hard questions. Like, Lord, what do you want me to do with these relationships? Lord, what would you want me to do with this opportunity? What do you want me to do with the resources? You, I don't have to ask those because I've kept God at arm's distance. Mark my words, friends. Sometimes we get so comfortable in our spiritual paralysis, we honestly fear getting well. This was not a silly question. It's one we all need to ask. Do you want the status quo? Or do you want to be made whole? Do you want to stay in your dysfunction? Or do you really want to move on into the exciting future God has designed for you? The choice is yours. Now let me point out something to you that I find very interesting in this story. Most of your translations, if you have an NIV, New American Standard, New Living Translation, and English Standard Version, the list goes on. Most of your versions are going to jump straight from verse 3 to verse 5. Did you notice that? Verse 4 is left out. And if you have a good study Bible, by the way, and you look over in the margin, a good study Bible should mention why verse 4 is left out. It should. It'll usually have verse 4 over there, and it'll say our oldest, most reliable manuscripts don't include this verse, and it's true. Here's how verse 4 reads. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now, the reasoning by textual critics is those who study ancient manuscripts, is that probably uh, some uh, caring scribe, centuries later, uh, after the autographs were written, after the original, someone probably thought, hmm, I need to make sense of verse seven for people. And so verse four was probably put in for that reason. Here's what verse seven says. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And I think that's a plausible reason for why verse 4 may have been inserted. There was a strong belief that these waters had healing powers. This was an amazing pool. Now, as you think about the Pool of Bethesda, I hope you're not thinking about the local YMCA. I hope you're not picturing in your mind a blue, clean, chlorinated pool with a couple of lifeguards on duty. That's not what the pool was like. It was much messier and smellier than that. Verse 2 said, it was near the sheep gate. That's a significant detail. That's the gate where the sheep, the sacrificial animals that were going to the temple came in and out. You know what that means? That means there was a lot of manure there. You know what that means? That means it was smelly. And furthermore, a uh, 18th century uh, English commentator, a Baptist preacher named John Gill, wrote a magnificent nine-volume commentary on the Bible, and it's based on ancient Jewish writings. And so you get special insight there from these ancient Jewish sources. And we can't prove this, but John Gill believes that because this pool was near the temple, that these sacrificial animals, they actually came and washed the entrails of the animals in the pool. So in other words, the pool was normally bloody. Think about it. Those who were diseased, who did not have access to the temple by Levitical law, made the practice of bathing themselves in this bloodied water of Bethesda because they believed that connecting with the blood of the offerings would have some miraculous healing value and virtue. Think about the powerful symbolism of that, by the way. If this was the feast of Passover, which I believe it was, And Jesus had come to Jerusalem to celebrate that. Think about the symbolic significance of the blood of the lamb as these animals were being sacrificed. It was a picture of that, a foreshadowing of the blood of Christ. Could it be, could it be that Jesus was saying to this man, look, do you want the full dose? Do you want to not just be set free from your physical paralysis, but do you want to avail yourself of the power of the blood of the Lamb? What a powerful question that is. And when Jesus asked the man the question, he replied with a series of excuses. We've already looked at verse 7, but he said, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. While I'm trying to get in, someone else gets down ahead of me. It's not not my fault. Have no one to help me. He essentially blames others for his lack of healing. You know, isn't it easy to get into that mode really for us? Why are you not really growing as a Christian? Well, it's my wife, really. If she would change, then I could get somewhere. Oh, it's my husband, you know. If he had a better attitude, boy, I tell you, I could really go with God. Why are you not living a life of integrity, consistent with what you believe? A life of holiness. Well, it's really my co-workers, you know. It's that environment I work in. I just can't live a godly life while I'm in that place. Very easy to get into this excuse-making mode, quite honestly, But if you're saying to yourself today, if someone else would change, I could be what God wants me to be, you're hiding behind an excuse. And you're likely never to experience what God can truly do in your life. I tell you, brothers and sisters, there comes a moment when we all need to respond, yes, I want to be made whole. I want to get well, Lord. No more excuses. By the way, did you notice in verse 8, Jesus basically ignores the man's excuses anyway. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. How ironic. That's the one thing he's not been able to do for 38 years. The people standing around must have wondered about Jesus. Is he crazy? Is he cruel? Or is he both? This man has been sick for so long. If he could have, he would have. But they didn't realize Jesus had power over time. And I say to you today, it doesn't matter how long you've been in that rut. It doesn't matter how long you've dealt with that hurt, that habit, that hang-up. Jesus has power over time today. And he can meet you right where you are. And he can set you free from that paralysis. Now, why did Jesus say get up? I just wanna ask that question. I hope you, as you've trekked with us through this series, and you're gonna continue to see this, by the way, I hope that you're getting this lesson. I guess if there was maybe one lesson I would want you to take away from all of these studies in these powerful signs, it would be this. The power of God is unleashed in our lives whenever we respond in obedience to the Lord's command. I hope you're you're picking that lesson up because it's every single week, isn't it? Every single week, we've seen that so far. First week, fill the jars with water and the power of God was unleashed. Just last week, from over 20 miles away, his son is 20 miles away sick. Jesus says, go, your son will be healed. And the man in resting faith turns And obeys the Lord's command, and the power of God is unleashed. And here, Jesus says to the man, get up. I wonder what the Lord is telling you to do. You see, transformation comes through obeying what he commands. And verse 9 says, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And I'm going to ask you in just a few moments to respond to what God is calling you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand up and step out and say by coming, Lord, I want to move into that future that you have for me. I don't want to be stuck or paralyzed anymore. Some of you need to receive Christ for the first time. God has called all of us to repent of our sins. He's given that command and to trust in him. And when you Obey that command. Listen, his power is unleashed in salvation in your life. Some of you need to do that for the very first time. This is your moment. Some of you need to come because of things that have happened in your life as a Christian. You've gotten stuck. Emotionally and spiritually, you've been stymied. Today is your day of breakthrough. Some of you will wanna come in just a moment and you wanna intercede and stand in the gap for people that you love and care about because you have someone close to you who's stuck in life and stymied and paralyzed and you just wanna pray that God would take them to a whole new level. So what about you? Are you in need of a work of God? I've been praying all week that God would make this a house of mercy today. God would make this a true Bethesda, a place where people are helped in all kinds of ways. And the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you and stirring you. The question is how will you respond? In just a moment, I'm going to turn our service over to our lead pastors at all of our sites, and they're going to steward us. They're going to guide us through this time of commitment. But let me ask you one final thing. Are you ready to say, I want to move into all that God has for me in the future? I want to come and obey the prompting of God. If that's you... And if you realize that the Lord is stirring you, then this is your moment with God. I'd like to turn it over now to our lead pastors at all of our locations. Now, here at Latham this weekend, I'm going to invite our team to come right now, and I'm going to steward you through this time and